Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We've been talking about um, Mishkan. We've been talking about um, sacrifices, different kinds of sacrifices. Um, we uh, have had the... Um, the, the anointing of the priests who are going to offer the sacrifices. And if you'll recall, sacrificing is a way of coming close to the divine in the ancient um, Near Eastern, the ancient Israelite understanding. It's also the way that um, ancient Israelite cult religion um, sacralized the killing of animals for us to have that really, really high effective source of protein. Like you have to eat like a million times more beans to get the protein that you get from animal protein um, absorbed by the body. So it's um, so it so meat was allowed, but it had to be sacrificial meat originally. Uh, and the that only gets changed after the centralization of sacrifice. But so originally it was you had to eat only sacrificial meat. This is a way of sacralizing the killing of animals in order for us to gain the, the protein that we um, have needed in the past from animal sources. People can argue about whether we need it today. I don't really care about that argument. Um, but, but in the ancient world, it was clear that, um, that meat was an important part uh, occasionally of the diet uh, in order to keep certain parts of the body um, strong. But, but Toro was never super happy about us eating meat. If you look at Eden, there was no meat eating in Eden. Where do we get the first eating of meat? When Noah comes off the ark, he builds an altar and sacrifices to God. So we, so we see that the eating of meat, um, it's already not Edenic. It's already not paradise. And it's already a compromise with what human beings need and want but there are limits placed on it. That is pretty much the situation with most things having to do with appetite, according to Israelite religion. Sex, desire, appetite is all fine, as long as one mitigates how one satisfies that desire. The desire for meat is understandable. God has to reconcile that Um, And so Yitz Greenberg would argue these these laws are ways that we come into the covenantal um, relationship where God takes the world as it is, but we're trying to move it closer to what it should be. So so all desire, all physical desire is fine. It's about how one satisfies that. So the laws of eating, we're going to talk a little bit about that today, um, that goes beyond sacrificial meat and goes in general to consumption of, of animals. So that's our Parsha today. So Alex, that's how this fits in. We've been talking about sacrificial meat. Who does the sacrificing? How do you prepare it? What are they called? When are they offered? Who can eat it? When we move from that conversation of, of Torah, of Leviticus, into the conversation in general moving from eating sacrificial meat to, in general, what animals can Israelites eat? So we see in the Joseph story, there's already in other parts of the ancient world, um, there's a lot of stuff around eating. 
a lot of stuff around food, a lot of stuff around with whom one can eat, right? Joseph and his people would not eat with the Hebrews because they were considered unclean. So, so it's not just ancient Israel, um, but if I'm, unless I'm wrong, uh, I believe I remember that this is the only code, full code we have from the ancient Near East on what's permitted and what's not. Like full code of anything that, that is a species of living uh, animal, what's, what's permitted and what is not permitted. The other thing I want to talk about before we go into our actual text um, is this idea that, if you'll recall, creation, according to ancient Near Eastern cosmology, particularly ancient Israelite cosmology, creation is all about separation. Do we remember this? Right? God creates light. And what's the first thing God does after that? God separates. Vayavdel Elohim ben Aor God separates the light from the dark. God separates day from night. God separates the waters above and the waters below. That's how we have room to exist, is that the waters above are held up by the firmament. The waters that got pushed below are held down. And that's how creation exists. Vayavdel, 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 havdalah, separation, distinction. This, this order out of chaos is how the world stands. When God wants to destroy the world, what happens? Do you remember? The waters from the top and the waters from the bottom are allowed to commingle and the world drowns. So when that order, that stability, that separation collapses, you have the undoing of creation, which is the presence of chaos. That concept carries over into Kashrut. It carries over into what we're going to read this morning. So I want us to take off our 21st century, modern, westernized, first world industrial country, ethnocentricity. I want us to take those glasses off and put on your ancient Israelite cosmological glasses as we look at this text. So everything I just said to you, I want you to keep that with you as we come into uh, reading this text. All right, so this is where we're supposed to start. We're not supposed to. This is, this is where the triennial division starts. Moshe speaks to Aaron and his remaining sons, Eleazar and Itamar, Alexis. That's because two of the other ones got zapped. We're not reading that this year. Um, that's in last year's reading, Nadav and Avihu. Nadav and Avihu, as we know, got got eaten by fire, consumed by fire, because they brought an offering that was not um, prescribed. All right. So we're, we're looking at Moshe talking with God here, some questioning going on about offerings, and Moshe seems to be um, happy with the answer. So great. We're going to come back to that if we have time, because um, there's something cool there. But if not, not. All right. So God speaks to Moshe and Aharon saying to them, speak to the Israelite people. These are the creatures that you may eat from all the land animals. Any animal that has true hooves with clefts through the hooves and that chews the cud, such may you eat. The following, however, of those that either chew the cud or have true hooves, you shall not eat. The camel, although it chews the cud, it has no true hooves. It is unclean for you. So tame, 
this word impure. The daemon, although it chews the cud, it has no true hooves, it is unclean for you. So it is tame. The hare, although it chews its cud, it has no true hooves, it is tame. And the swine, although it has true hooves, with the hooves cleft through, it does not chew the cud, it is tame. Notice that is the only treatment it gets. Notice, right? The big, huge deal made about pork. This, it's the same as all these other ones, okay? You shall not eat of their flesh or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. So you can't eat them, nor can you touch them. They are impure. And they render, and they render you impure, right? If you consume or touch them. These you may eat of all that live in water. And we're going to talk about why these, these animals, why possibly this condition of true hoof and chewing its cud. These you may eat of all that live in water. Anything in water, whether in the seas or in the streams that have fins and scales, these may you eat. But anything in the seas or in the streams that has no fins and scales among all the swarming things of the water and among all the other living creatures that are in the water, they are shekets lachem. They are an abomination for you. All right. So all of us LGBTQ plus people, we love this sentence because this is the same word, people, that is used of, right, the commandment against to men that we see in Leviticus, it's the same word, sheket. So this is worse than tameh. So it's stronger than impure. Um, and so we get a stronger term here, sheket. So that it's like, ugh, like it made the, it made their flesh crawl, right? That that, and we'll talk about why, what what's going on there. And an abomination for you, they will remain. You will not eat of their flesh and you will abominate their carcasses. Okay, you have to love that abomination is also a verb. You will abominate their carcasses, meaning stay away from them. It's taboo. Everything in water that has no fins and scales shall be an abomination for you. The following you shall abominate among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, and the black vulture, the kite, falcons of every variety, all varieties of raven, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, hawks of every variety, the little owl, the cormorant, the great owl, the white owl, the pelican, and the bustard, the stork, herons of every variety, the hoopoe, and the bat. All winged swarming things that walk on all fours shall be an abomination for you. All right, there's your clue. So chew on that and see if you can come up with where we're going to go. All winged swarming things that walk on fours shall be an abomination for you. So we've moved from the walk from the birds um, to now swarming things. But these you may eat among all the winged swarming things that walk on fours, all that have above their feet jointed legs to leap with on the ground. Of these you may eat the following, locusts of every variety, yay! All varieties of bald locusts, crickets of every variety, and all varieties of grasshopper, yes! But all other winged swarming things that have four legs shall be an abomination for you. And the following shall make you unclean. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be unclean until evening. 
And whoever carries the carcasses of any of them shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. Every animal that has true hooves, but without clefts through the hooves, or that does not chew the cud, they are unclean for you. Whoever touches them shall be unclean. Also, all animals that walk on paws among those that walk on fours are unclean for you. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be tame until evening. Anyone who carries, they have to wash. The following is unclean. Um, the mole, the mouse, the great lizards, the gecko, the land crocodile, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. Darn. Those are unclean among all the sw- Those are for you, the unclean among all the swarming things. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until evening. All right. And it also contaminates earthen vessels, which we later see in the rules of rabbinic kashrut, right? Any food that may be eaten, it shall be unclean if it comes into contact with water. As to any liquid that may be drunk, it shall become unclean if it was inside any vessel. This is very, this is very much about the transference of tum'ah, of impurity. And remember, we have to keep the people pure so that they can uh, participate in the cult. All right, I think pretty much we're done. If an animal that you may eat has died, Anyone who touches its carcass shall be unclean until evening. So that means you you can't eat something that dropped dead. You have to slaughter it, right? It has to be, you have to kill it. It can't have just died. All right. Um, All things that swarm upon the earth are an abomination. They shall not be eaten. You shall not eat among all the things that swarm upon the earth. Anything that crawls on its belly. All right. So look at this word. I want you to look at this word. So this word we're going to talk about uh, in, a, in a, a, hopefully, gachon. Kol holech al gachon, anything that, that walks, literally goes on its belly. So this word gachon um, is off limits. It's an abomination. It's shekets, right? Abomination. All right. So um, let's go to why. What is all this about? For I, Adonai, am your God. You shall sanctify yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not make yourselves unclean through any swarming thing that moves upon the earth, for I, Adonai, am am the one who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. These are the instructions. This is the Torah. The instruction concerning animals, birds, all living creatures that move in water and all creatures that swarm on earth for distinguishing between the unclean and the clean, between the living things that may be eaten and the living things that may not be eaten. Okay, so first of all, laws of kashrut are not laws about health. Let me be very clear. Laws of kashrut are not laws about health. If you want to talk about health and what you can eat and what you can't, you don't look to the laws of kashrut. <laughs> Cholesterol, you know, a lot of you, know, you don't look to kashrut. So why do I say that so stridently? Why do I care about that? Because a lot of Jews who are embarrassed about these categories and carrying them forward into today wanted to argue that there was a rationale in Torah that made sense for its time. And that was if you didn't cook pig properly, you got trichinosis and died. Okay, if you don't cook beef properly, 
guess what happens? Just as unpleasant a disease that will kill you, right? So shrimp, oh, well, some people were allergic and they didn't pull the poop thing out right. And so people died. Guess what, people? People are still allergic to shellfish, right? Like, so nothing was changed. So people wanted there to be some kind of reason. And so they go to health. If you eat meat and milk at the same time, the milk, the dairy coats your stomach, and then you don't, you don't digest the meat as well. This is all crap. It's junk. If people want to believe that, I am fine with that. But we are not those people. We, we're going to know that we're choosing to believe it. That's fine. And why do I care so much about that? And also, Bert Kleinman's going to bring up, well, we don't want to eat things that kill other things because we don't want to be like those things. We don't want to eat things that tear other things apart or eat garbage, or right? Because we don't want to be like garbage. That's Bert Kleinman quoting the rabbinic justification of why there's meaning to these categories. Also, crap, <laughs> right? So, um, But it's not to say it didn't bring meaning to people. That's great. If you find meaning in that, that's awesome. That's great. But we're going to acknowledge that that's not what was going on in ancient Israel. And the reason I, I care about this in our time is because the real purpose of Kashrut was what we just read at the end of that section. Ki kadosh ani Adonai. For I am holy and y'all shall be holy. This was the Israelites way of understanding that putting limits on what we eat is an act of holiness. To put limits on who we can have sex with is a way of sanctifying intimate physical relationship. Putting limits on how much we can work is about sanctifying six days you shall work. You can only do that if you put limits around things, if you put limitation around what our tendencies and proclivities might otherwise be, if you put limits and thoughtfulness around your appetites, you become a holy people. So this is supposed to make Israel a holy people in how it eats. That is still the case. I don't eat pork. I eat lots of other things. I now eat meat and milk together, whatever, but I don't eat pork and I don't eat shellfish. It's not because there's anything wrong with them. It's not because it's more healthy for me. It's, it's not, right, because I'm going to become a pig if I eat it. That, nothing like that. It's the, this is one of the ways to limit my appetite as a Jew. I limit myself in lots of other ways around eating for health. I don't eat as much red meat as I would like to. I don't eat as much bread, trust me on that one, as I would like to. I try not to eat a lot of carbs at all. That's not because it makes me happy. Nothing makes me happier than pasta and bread and cheese and some other kind of fat. That's happiness. Foie gras on French bread is utter bliss. But on two counts, I don't eat that ethically because I don't like what they do to geese, force feeding them to make their livers fat. And I don't want to be unhealthy in my body. And so I don't eat that carb. So that's all about health and some about ethics and values. I don't eat pork as a Jew. So that there are some choices, thoughtful choices that I make around eating every time I sit down to eat. And some of those are Jewish choices. 
That's the point of kashrut. As a Jew, we don't eat this. Now, if that's not meaningful to you, then don't do it. <laughs> but, but, but to explain it some other way, you know, since biblical times, it is just a way for people to who do observe to try to make it, or to or people who are embarrassed who don't observe but are embarrassed that it's there, um, that want to make it sound like we were so super smart and ahead of our time and and figured out something other ancient peoples didn't figure out about shrimp. So um, it's about you are Israelite, you are to be kadosh, you are to be set aside and set apart. So you're not going to eat what the neighbors eat. Okay, so that's number one. I want to be very clear about that. But how did possibly these particular categories come to be? There is anthropologically, obviously, some forces being brought to bear on these particular categories. species, right? These, these particular characteristics of, uh, of animals. All right. So what might that be? Let's look. And this stuff I actually find really cool. Like the why, the why these categories, the why like this, anthropologically speaking in the ancient Near Eastern Israelite period, that I find really interesting and really cool because you know what a geek and nerd I am. All right. So let's geek out together, shall we? Here we go. All right. What did we say was the category that if it's on land, well, first, before before I go to this text, um, if it's on land, it's a split hoof, which is called a true hoof, and it chews its cud. That's what we can eat of the land animals. We're going to look at why that might have evolved, um, which I think is pretty cool. And, um, and if it's in the water, it's fins and scales, right? If it's on land and it, it's a bug, like a grasshopper, if it has a jointed knee above the foot and it flies, you can eat it. All right, what do all these things have in common? So very early on, Mary Douglas, the anthropologist, in her work on purity and impurity, um, understood uh, based on work before her, but she really popularized it and made it accessible. That, that if something is living in the water, the proper form of transportation in water is swimming, fins and scales. If something has wings, meaning it's supposed to fly, but it also jump, but it also has legs and walks on the no. Unless its legs are clearly designed to jump on land, then that form of locomotion is proper for that animal. But if you have something that lives in the water and then can crawl up on the land and walk around on the land, no, 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 no. That is improper mode of locomotion. Something that can crawl and live on the land does not belong in the water. So this is why we go back to this idea of creation. It's not instinctive to us, but it was to ancient Israel. When things cross categories, it's, it's creepy, right? It's things need to be in their categories because creation is about separating. And when things get too mushy, it's very close to existential chaos and you're inviting trouble. So for the ancient mind, 
the ink, which was lo located in the heart, by the way, um, the ancient mind understood that it's just, it's, it's, if we're going to be a holy people, if we're going to be connected to the God of life and the God of, um, of, of organization and separation and creation, then we want to live in line with that and their intuition which remained through the rabbinic period, by the way, the taxonomy, the, the classification of things, the rabbis actually lifted up to a science um, of how you classify things, that things need to be in their place. And you only eat of the things that are kind of lining up with the categories of creation and that stay within those boundaries. So that's one aspect of um, why these categories is about locomotion. So that's one thing. Things locomotion, how things move in the, their natural, mostly natural habitat, that's fins and scales. That's what we saw with, um, uh, what do you call them? Wings and legs. So now let's look at behema. Now let's look at split hoof and chewing its cud. Because that's not about locomotion, is it? Because a deer and a cow walk the ground the same way. Why those two things? Some people want to argue it's because even if you don't know the species, you can tell if it's got a split hoof and choose its cut. So how about I don't know what a daemon is exactly. How will I know if I can eat it or not? Well, I have to see. I can see, obviously, its hooves and that it chews its cut. All right. I, that, I, th I find that interesting, but I want to show you something even more interesting. And that is from uh, Tamar Kamienkowski's book. Um, and I found it later online to be able to share it with you. Her wisdom commentary, the women's uh, wisdom commentary uh, on the volume. She wrote the volume on Leviticus. All right. Every religion arises in, uh, but this is uh, David Seidenberg. Every religion arises or is shaped by a place and teaches how to live in that place. For sure. Though every ritual has many levels of interpretation, historical, theological, and personal, the ecological meaning may be the soil in which all else grows. The depth of this meaning is not in generalities, but in the details. So not eating blood, he talks about that, makes it almost impossible to eat hunted game. In an, uh, okay. in an ecosystem where humans depended on large herds of wild animals like buffalo, as we find in the North American plains, this rule would be almost impossible to follow. But in an ecosystem where wild herds and habitats are less productive, a hunting culture is unsustainable. A culture where humans can carefully control the size of domesticated herds to fit the limits of the ecosystem and the needs of the population is what's called for. That was the ecosystem which shaped the religion of our ancestors. This brings us to the most puzzling of categorical rules, which animals we can and cannot eat. Almost everyone knows the rule, chewing cud and split hooves, right? Those are kosher, everything else is not. What do these two characteristics of hoof and mouth mean? Anthropologically, there are many interpretations, and he quotes uh, Mary Douglas, Purity and Danger. But ecologically, which I love because I, I don't think I've ever learned this before. There, and I, I did it last time with y'all, but hopefully you don't remember. But ecologically, there is a specific meaning which goes far beyond any hygienic or other rationalistic or symbolic interpretation. I'll slow down when we get there. That meaning, practically speaking, is straightforward. Any animal that chews its cuds can eat grasses and plants that are inedible to human beings. And any animal that has split hooves can walk and graze on land that is too rocky to farm with a plow. Hmm. 
these characteristics together mean one very clear thing. The only land animals that we can eat, according to the laws of Kashrut, are animals that do not compete with human beings for food. All right, that's that's a big that's a big aha. So we can, we cannot eat land animals that compete with humans for food. Why is that important? Embedded in this wisdom about locale is another truth. Any culture which allows domesticated herds to compete with humans for food also pits farmers against herders. Recall, ancient Israel was a civilization that was mixed between farmers and semi-nomadic pastoralists who were herders. So this would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? If animals compete with humans for food, it pits farmers against herders. And more importantly, it pits the poor who have no land against owners who control both land and herds. We can easily see the dynamics of this problem in the modern world, where rising world food prices endanger the poor in many countries. Those prices are driven up in part by the industrial practice of feeding grain to cattle, right? So taking farmland and its produce and not feeding people with it. You're feeding cows that people eat with it. So now the food that you're allowed to eat is competing with human beings for that grain instead of giving them their natural diet of diverse grasses and other pasture plants and they're also driven up more recently by the use of grain to make ethanol fuel. Instead of competition between herders and farmers, we have competition between feeding our SUVs and cattle and feeding other people. Take that in for a second. So if he's right, the laws of Kashrut would have also been laws of justice. It would have been a way to sustainably exist in that ecosystem as well as to minimize the difference between who has and who doesn't, and to minimize competition for resources that would have made the civilization less stable and certainly less just. In order to have justice, which may be the most important value within Judaism, there needs to be a way for farming and animal husbandry to produce enough for all people, poor and rich. The way to achieve this value in different ecosystems might be different, but any culture founded on justice will always find a way to bring this value into alignment with its ecosystem. My hypothesis for why animals must have cloven hooves and chew their cud is just that, a hypothesis. It fits into a broader understanding of how the Jewish relationship to food is structured by the Torah with its emphasis on equity and the sanctity of both human life and all life. If this theory could be proven wrong, kashrut would still have its other meanings. But in a time when all of the world's religions need to help us steer towards sustainability, it is worth so much to know that Judaism, from its earliest time and earliest stories, has an ecological underpinning that we can all listen to and search for. Looking at the way Jews stereotypically eat and feel about kashrut, I think we may have a little work to do in order to listen better. But we need to hear this call to sustainability if Judaism is going to be relevant in humans next century. If the eco-psychologists and philosophers and theologians are right, this search is also a way to become more fully human, and I would say more deeply Jewish. Yay! All right, I'll stop sharing so that I can see y'all. 
All right, Judith, you have your hand up? <laughs> Perry. Yes. Another thing that I have heard over the years is that uh, the idea of separation is furthered by not allowing Jews to eat the food of other people because it prevents intermarriage. In other words, if you can't have a meal with somebody, you're not going to be social with them. And the other people eat pork and eat whatever else they eat. But it was a way of keeping separate Jews from other people. So that's always been the case. So any people that has rules around eating, that is part of the case, is you want to identify with the in-group. And one of the ways that you build identification is eating together. So this is the case universally. So Jews are no different than anyone else um, in in that regard. Um, And and probably there are um, other uh, factors that were involved, including the neighbors probably had a festival where they roasted a pig in honor of Baal. So part of it is if you can't eat that, there's not a chance you're going to be at the Baal pig festival and backsliding into worshiping Baal by accident, right? Being seduced into um, into that because you, it started as you just went to the festival. Then you were eating with them. Then you're drinking beer, right? And once you open the keg and y'all are hanging out, oh, well, we're just going to go do this other thing that's part of our celebration. Okay, so you just attend. Before long, <laughs> right, if you really like the beer and pork, then, right, it, it's a way of backsliding because you have to remember most Israelites were converted Canaanites. So there was always the danger of backsliding, right? And so a little different, but, you know, for me, this is one of the, the things about having a tree in the living room in the winter. I don't care about people having a tree in the living room in the winter. What I care about is why are you doing that? Oh, right, because everybody else does. And what are they doing? They're celebrating the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the risen Christ. I get it that most people with a tree in the living room are not putting it up as a symbol of the birth of Jesus, the savior of humankind. I get that. But I also understand the wisdom of saying you can't go to the pork festival for Baal because you can't eat pork. Right? If you just don't put the tree in your living room, there's no confusion. There's no right. And so it's, I don't know. I'm not making a very. Yes, you are. It's kind of like, uh, you know what dancing leads to. So you don't dance. It leads to dancing. Right? <laughs> Tree in the living room leads to dancing. Okay. Um, who else has something they want to say? So Mark, tell me more about this moved, um, the Neolithic revolution. Tell me a little bit more about that. The Neolithic revolution. I think I was just, uh, it came to mind in terms of what you were uh, talking about, uh, with the, the non-competition for food. Um, the Neolithic Revolution had to do with the uh, settling into farming communities and the competition between herders, hunters, and settled farmers. So it's yeah. just one of many things that may have been a background issue. hundred percent that would have been a factor if you, if you accept Seidenberg. Right, if you accept his argument, yes, you would say they're absolutely related. Right. That, that there's already a competition um, have, you know, between those who are their wealth is generated by the extra produce of the land and, you know, civilization and cities, you know, being around, being able to control crops. Um, 
and uh, versus right semi-nomadic pastoralists who had herds. And for sure, there was a tension. For sure, we know that. Um, and in ancient Israel, it, it would have been a major tension as well. For, you know, for all those same pressures um, w- would have been there. All right. So wait, Barry, what were you saying? Especially Russians who have this tradition since paganism and after the revolution became a completely secular practice. What are you referencing there? The tree in the living room in the winter. The tree in the living room. Got it. Yeah. And, right. and also, I think. Right. Which was a pagan practice, right? So that was beautifully and brilliantly reconstructed, right, by the church to become a symbol of, right, Christianity uh, versus paganism, right? So let them keep their tree. You're just going to reconstruct it. You're going to reconstruct the meaning um, of that tree to now be about, right, um, life. Uh, Could you, Rabbi, could you remind me about, we talked about the Egyptians looking down upon upon uh, shepherds for some reason? What, yeah. Is this related in some way? This composition no, that's, an that's a very interesting point. Like, is that related to the tension between farming and um, and herding? That's a very interesting point. Um, but it, yes, it was considered um, the one of the lowest of the forms of subsistence technology you could be involved in was being a shepherd. Uh, but if, But of course, for us, as a people, that was a necessity and a precursor to you being fit to lead, right? So Moshe had to be a shepherd if he was going to be fit to lead the people of Israel. You have to be ready to care for all life and particularly vulnerable animal life and prove that you can do that. And same with David, right? Because the whole Torah is pointing towards David. Uh, and David, of course, uh, in our mythology, needed to be a shepherd first also if he was going to be a successful leader of the People, Israel. Um, okay. Other, other stuff? I, I've always thought there was something very interesting about the idea of shepherds, because shepherds don't control. Shepherds set limits, which is what you were talking about before. And they kind of nudge the flock in one direction or another uh, to get them all to go in a partic- to a particular place. Right. Um, and... Uh, this is this is the language of the 23rd Psalm. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What the heck does that mean? Like, who feels comforted by a rod or a staff? Nobody except sheep, <laughs> right? If you're using the poetic um, narrative of the 23rd Psalm, right? Adonai ro'i, um, God is my ro'e, my shepherd. Then the rod and the staff are used to stop an animal from going over the cliff, right? It's used, like you said, Bert, to nudge the animals in the right direction. And in that sense, um, it is not only a comfort because I'm not going to fall off something because the rod is going to stop me and hold me back, um, but also it's going to direct me in the direction I should be going that I wouldn't sense on my own, right? Because I'm not aware of all the dangers and I'm not aware of all the pitfalls and I'm not aware of all the ways if you go that path, it could lead to dancing right so um so <laughs> the rod and the staff all of this is that language of of shepherding which gets back to your phrase limits as an act of holiness oh nice Bert. nice way to bring it home right so right that limiting the sheep is a loving act limiting their movement is not is not uh, not punishment what, what am i trying to say it's not 
a negative thing, right? Limiting their movement is about them being safe and it's about helping them live a more, a more, they have a better chance at living and which, and, and the kind of life you want for them is one where they're not hurt, right. Or lost. Um, And so that's definitely, I love that, that that's, that's exactly how the tradition and Torah understands the limits that are around holiness that that is, that is how we live a fuller life. And it is how we live a life that is connected to, um, to the divine being present, even in our desires. We're supposed to feel good when we eat, right? So um, that's, that's, that's what we're supposed to feel, uh, is happy when we eat. We're supposed to enjoy having sex. We're supposed to enjoy physical things of this world, including our professions and our jobs and our whatever. Um, but we're supposed to put limits on it in order to live lives of holiness, um, because that's the difference between us and animals, right? Is that, and, and, you know, early Israel and the rabbis might say, and between Israel and the other nations, is that they don't put a limit on their um, appetites. And we do, and we do that consciously uh, and we do that in order to remain um, healthfully attached to satisfying our appetites within the limits that we have uh, developed as a people. Um, and then we can, and, and uh, uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner argues, once you have limits and discipline within that, you then have all kinds of freedom, right? Itzhak Perlman is free to play whatever he wants on the violin because he has the discipline of practice. Because he practices over and over and over and over and over in a very disciplined fashion, he is free in a way you and I are not to play anything he wants on the violin. So that within those restrictions, once one limits oneself within the laws that that we would identify now as helping make us kadosh, a people attached more closely to the divine, then you can be free to enjoy. So that was the goal, was to actually be free to enjoy what we're allowed to have. Dana? So I just had a question because you started out by uh, telling us to think about the ancient Israelite perspective. So if if the ancient Israelites had these laws, it would help them survive. But we still have these laws, and a lot of times it feels like we use them to separate us, as some people would say, makes us better than others. Or, and even if you just keep it in the Jewish world, if we follow these laws, we're better than our other Jewish family members because we're following them and you're not. The, the, the rationale behind the laws seems to have changed. It's not to keep us holy. But it, it shows that we're better than. Okay. So, so that, so first of all, I want to say it, they weren't, they didn't come into being to help us survive, right? It was about right relationship to the ecosystem. It's about right relationship to consumption. So, and that for ancient Israel was an act of justice, which is an act of holiness. That other people took that and made it a competition about how godly are you is on them. That's on them. That's an agenda. And that is why, and I'm glad you brought it up, 
That is one of the reasons Kaplan and his students left the conservative movement. Kaplan did not want to found another arm of Judaism. He felt we were too divided already and too turned against each other as a people. He did not want to found Reconstructionism, but he couldn't stay within the conservative movement because if you push somebody hard enough, put, and he taught at the seminary, right? His whole career, he taught at the JTS, helping make conservative rabbis. Push one of them hard enough to the wall on this stuff, and they will admit they believe it comes from God. This is one of the reasons they left the movement. If it comes from God, then there is a possibility for you to turn to someone else and say, the way you're eating is not God's will. Therefore, I am living a life, right, of greater holiness than you. I am living a life more in line with the divine will than you. This is one of those places where Kaplan was like, if, as long as you can flip it like that, we can't be part of this theology. So for Kaplan, Kashrut was about us reaching for holiness around eating. And in that sense, Seidenberg works, right? What's the most just way to eat? That's an expression of holiness. Reconstructionism would say, we have to constantly be doing the work of figuring out what that is for our time because we've only ever had the Israelite side of that conversation. We've never had the divine side of the conversation because God doesn't talk and God doesn't make the distinctions humans do. That's why they had to leave the movement. Does that make sense? Right? They were like, because it either really does come top down or it really does go bottom up. And for Reconstructionists, it really is bottom up. We are looking and reaching always for how we can line up our behavior in this assumption with holiness. What would that mean for us today? And every time I teach this, I feel the same amount of excitement and passion about, about this conversation about sustainability and that we're not having that conversation as first world people very often or very much. We are not restricting our consumption very much because we don't have to, we think. And so we eat pretty much whatever we want, right? And we consume whatever we want. And, um, and how much attention do we really pay to, let's just say coffee, right? We know the difference between fair trade coffee and non-fair trade coffee means the coffee growers and pickers and producers' children either have food, shoes, and education or not. With just the difference we would pay for fair trade chocolate, fair trade whatever. Um, so, right, it's, it's, um, it's about how we seek justice in setting limits now. Plastic, Alexandra, yes. Yes, that is one of my biggest ones is how much plastic um, we consume and it's almost impossible to get away from it, right? It's really, it's really hard. If you take a container to the grocery store and say, I'd like a half a pound of tuna fish, please. They look at you like you have three heads and now forget it. With COVID, they're not going to touch it, right? So it's like, just weigh the container and then put a half a pound over that in there, please. Why do you need to give me another plastic container? Um, all right, sorry. I know people are trying to talk. So, Helene, did you want to talk? You haven't talked yet. Oh, 
I just want to say that I, I feel so strongly about this and, and how uh, Reconstructionist Judaism um, brings this idea of holiness into the uh, 21st century and, and why it's so important for us to, um, to be concerned about uh, ecology and, and how we live with plastics and everything else, with, with the waste and, and feeding the hungry and this idea of um, grains feeding animals rather than people. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It's, it's very powerful stuff, very, very important, very meaningful. And no less important in terms of living lives of justice and no less important. I mean, it's more important than ever, I think. Yes. And yes. so many people want to just trash Kashrut as an embarrassment and it makes us holier than now and it makes us better and it keeps us distinct. That's not true. That's not the instinct of Kashrut. It became that because we twist everything. Yes. Like we, we can manage to twist everything. The original impulse I agree with Seidenberg and Mary Douglas and others. I believe the impulse is justice yes. and holiness around consumption. That, that has never been more important to explore than today. And as long as we shy away from this topic as, oh, that's what religious Jews do and it's silly and it's whatever, we can't really engage as Reconstructionist Jews with the, the imperative of Kashrut, right? Which is how can yes. we more justly and how can we consume, and in general, I think, consume in a way that creates a, a, a world society of more justice, not less? And so much of what we consume, and I'm going to use this word on purpose, fuels <laughs> injustice, right? Um, and we just don't talk about it nearly, nearly enough. And, and I include myself in that. Um, but I you know, you should know at KI, it is an official policy of KI that there are no single use water bottles at KI. Just so you know. Isn't this what the eco kashrut movement is all about? Yes, absolutely. Can you explain a little bit about that? So eco kashrut is, you know, Art Waskow and all these folks working um, usually on the side of Jewish renewal um, and really looking at this as an absolute imperative for our time. That if we want to claim we're trying to live lives of holiness of any kind as Jews, we have got to be talking about echo kashrut. And that styrofoam is trafe, period. You know, there are certain things that are they're trafe, period. If you're a Jew who cares at all about a relationship to the divine and to justice and to holiness, if you care at all about it, you cannot, you can't eat certain things and you can't buy certain things and you can't consume certain things because it's just so horrible. Um, they go way further than a lot of us would, but, but I, there's nothing that he teaches that I disagree with. It's about how willing are we to self-limit, right? Um, and so Echo Kashrut is all about having a Jewish ethic of consumption that is tied to the ecosystem and to the environment. And that might mean some things are kosher in one society that aren't kosher here, just like uh, Seidenberg is arguing Kashru came into being, you know, these, these particular rules, because you want animals that are not competing with humans for food, right? And that's the category. But somewhere else, it might be a different animal, um, right? Yeah, and Mehmet, I, I, I've been very disturbed too. It's really distressing and disturbing to me, um, like really disturbing um, how much plastic we've consumed during COVID. Um, you know, everything that gets delivered, you know, for takeout, 
um, gets delivered in plastic, everything. Like I'm even, I'm switching to, it sounds like I'm not trying to be sanctimonious. I'm just, this is how much it's bothered me. I'm switching to laundry detergent sheets, right? Cause like those big plastic bottles, like, it's like, oh, why do we do that? It's so stupid. It's just habit. If I just go online, find an article with the best ones, I'm ordering them and I'm done, right? Like with these big jugs of um, laundry detergent, but in all of this like plastic from takeout from COVID, it's like, I, I keep washing it and recycling it and using it as Tupperware and taking food to other people, you know, that I've cooked when I've made too much and take it to other, it's like, it's, cause what do, it's, it's crazy. And that 75% of the plastic we put in our recycling bins that we feel so virtuous about 75% of it does not get recycled. Yeah. That's insane. Like 75% does not get, so that means 25% of the plastic we consume is recycled or upcycled, you know, or used in, in, in making something else. And that, that's just, it's unforgivable, right? It's sinful. Um, All right. So John Oliver said the average American consumes about a credit card's worth of plastic every week. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? I don't understand. They eat about, they eat about the amount of microplastics that have broken down in the ocean. uh, We are consuming about that much plastic in tiny broken down microscopic form because it's in the ocean and it's in everything. Right. So the five gyres, right. Those five islands of plastic, the size of, you know, Texas, you know, that sit out there, the sun beats on them and breaks all of it down into these particles that the fish understand as plankton. Right. The ratio of plankton to plastic particles has radically shifted in really scary ways. So there's no way, even if your fish is from the ocean, there's no way you're not consuming um, plastic. And and, and not that it should just be about us, but of course, that's what's going to actually make us act, isn't it? (laughs) Is is, uh, that it's, it's killing us, even though it's already killing us and we don't even know it. All right. So I want to, what did I want to do? One more thing with you. Yeah. I want to do one more thing with you before I let you go. Um, so let's go back. I just want to show you this text just so it's, it's a curiosity that you just won't learn everywhere else. Um, that's why you learn with me, right? So let's go to chapter 10 of Leviticus, chapter 10, verse 16. darosh darash moshe. So uh, regarding the, the goat, for this, for the purgation offering, darosh darash. See this, these letters, dalit resh shin. Again, dalit resh shin. This is lidrosh. So here it means Moshe is asking, but y'all have all heard us say midrash comes from drash here. So to unpack lidrosh, you give a drasha. You give a drash on the Torah portion. That that's this word, but it can, here it means to inquire. That he's asking God t- to drash this law for him, right? Why did I bring this up? Because these this is the exact. If you count by words, this is the exact middle of the Torah. If you count by words, this space between drash and drash is the exact middle of the Torah. And what is our job when it comes to Torah? Lidrosh. Our job is to drash. Our job is to ask, to inquire, to unpack, to, to 
expound on the Torah. How fantastic is that? The exact middle of Torah is uh, drash and drash. But if you count by letters, not by words, the other place I showed you is the exact middle of the Torah. And that is chapter 11, verse 42, in case you have forgotten. Kol holech al gachon. Everything that moves, that moves forward on its belly. This is the exact middle of the Torah, if you count by letters. So, Torah is here to stop us from thinking we are lowly creatures crawling in the dirt, not worthy of anything. Torah is here to lift us up. It is to remind us we are created in the image of the divine. We are not gachon crawlers. We are not belly crawlers through the dirt. We are dafka, created B'Tselem Elohim in the image of the divine. And uh, Torah is here to help us uh, do that, to help us live lives of holiness and consciousness and goodness and justice and compassion and equity. Um, and darash, darosh, darosh, darash. Get at drashing if you want to get at not being a gachon crawler and you want to see yourself as, uh, as holy and as reflective of the divine. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.